Hello and welcome to this week's Tales Effie podcast. My name is Kate Parker and I'm joined by Julie Balgatai. Hello. Hello. And it was another long old debate in the Lords last night. Well, no, I should say on what day are we are now, Friday, on Wednesday night. It was a long old debate in the Lords, wasn't it, on the latest skills bill? Goodness me, I think it was actually Tuesday, but it all everything just oh, merged into just... one. But I mean, by the end, it was basically Wednesday, so you're <laughs> yeah. you're, spot, you're spot on there. They know how to debate in the House of Lords, and it was uh, day one of the committee stage of the Skills and Post Sixteen Education Bill. And as we reported on in the past, there are a lot of amendments, so there was a lot of stuff to get through, and those weren't even all the amendments so uh, yeah we've got day two and three to and come write about. <laughs> <laughs> well they have a lot of opinions don't they which actually i think is is really good i think at the start one of them said i can't remember who it was now but one of them said oh it's so brilliant to see how many people want to speak on this um considering that a few years ago when a similar bill went through there wasn't really any speakers talking about the importance of FE. So I think it is, as you know, 25 people speaking is a lot, especially when they're all speaking more than once, but actually it's encouraging that they are engaging with the sector in this way and with a bit, I think. Yeah, and it was really nice to see there were quite a few people who stood up and said that they had been sorry that they couldn't speak in the second stage debate a couple of weeks back, which, as we all know, was eternal. That was even longer um, and had something like, you know, I want to say 50 speakers yeah. in it. So people obviously have really strong opinions. And there were a couple of people who were saying that they actually didn't know a great deal about further education or skills and training, but had in the process of preparing for the debate, you know, learned an awful lot and, and now had an opinion. So, you know, it's uh, as it makes its way through the Lords, I feel like we'll we'll hear a lot more about what people think and, and where they feel the shortcomings of the bill are at this point. And obviously you had like the key that, you know, the usual suspects stand up and give and give their opinions. So Lord Baker um, gave quite the speech, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, it was this is obviously something he feels incredibly strongly about. And, and we covered his contribution in the stage two debate. But it's he is incredibly passionate about all of this and his his speech yesterday uh, was testament to that. There were also a couple of occasions later on in the debate where he really pulled up the minister, sort of saying, are you even listening to me? You know, this is actually important. Stop reading your notes. Pay attention to what I'm saying. Which maybe also shows a little bit, you know, that he really is a, a different generation of, of politician. He's been in this game an awfully long time. But he was talking about two sides of essentially the same coin. One being that he really feels like the curriculum in schools, the way it is at the moment, basically abandons a whole load of what he then calls disadvantaged young people and the skills bill can't be expected to make up for this. And then tied into that, he talks about this divide that is being created between the academic route, which is being supported by the school curriculum and technical education, which he says schools can't do anymore. And he calls this education apartheid, where basically you will end up with two separate routes and absolutely no, uh, you know, my favorite term, parity of esteem between the two. So we have a a short clip of what he had to say yesterday. This bill basically focuses upon 16 to 19 education, but it cannot be looked uh, just as a separate section. It depends upon what has happened between 11 and 16. And if you've made a mess of 11 to 16, you can't compensate for it by this bill. And I believe that since 2010, we've made a mess of 11 to 16 education. 
And this is uh, really what is behind uh, Lady Whitaker's uh, amendment. She's talking about disadvantaged children. The number of disadvantaged children today, it's usually considered if you don't get level four in English and maths, you're considered to be disadvantaged, is between 30 and 35%. This is not a small minority, it's about two million, over two million students who failed after 14 years of free state education not to acquire a basic literacy and numeracy qualification. It's a huge indictment, my lords, of the English education system and what has been imposed upon it since 2010. Because Michael Gove imposed his, um, his uh, curriculum without any consultation whatsoever upon the schools in 2010. And his curriculum is known as EBEC or Progress 8. And it consists of eight academic subjects. Two English, one maths, three science, one foreign language, and either history or geography. That, my lords, is a grammar school curriculum. It is an academic curriculum, and it excludes any sort of technical training, any sorts of computer training, any sorts of design training, any sorts of cultural studies. And so what you have seen since uh, 2010, no fall in the number of disadvantaged children. Disadvantaged children in 2010 were roughly the same, about 30 to 35 percent. They were the same in 2016 when the Conservatives took control. There has been no significant improvement. And I fear uh, that I'd have to tell you that the attainment gap between the brightest and the less bright students will have grown substantially during COVID. There's absolutely no doubt of that. And I think when, you know, when he talks about that kind of two separate routes, you do see that really reflected in the big debate at the moment about um, qualifications at level three and DTECs and apply generals and whether we are going to end up with an A-level or a T-level system for, for students. So you can really see, he's just, you know, for, like for someone like you said, is has been in the game a long time. He's still so relevant and so on it, isn't he? He absolutely. And I mean, it's, you could say relevant, but it also shows you how long this has been a problem. You know, this this sort of two roots approach has been taken in the UK for a very long time. It's just that the roots have been called different things. And I think he had hoped that the bill might go some way of bringing the two closer together. And he always uses, you know, inevitably the example of UTCs that work really closely with employers and do both academic and, and vocational subjects. But that, I think, is his main point, that for so long these two routes have existed and now they're being more entrenched than, than he says, you know, we should see in a bill like that. But yeah, like you say, you know, there were a lot of eloquent speakers, but he was certainly one of them. He wasn't the only one, though. Uh, Lord Adonis had some strong views, too. Well, he always does, doesn't he? But he really, I mean, his speech was something else. A lot of, a lot of the speakers actually afterwards commented and said that they didn't think they could match his gumption and the passion that he showed because he was gunning for them. He talked a lot about all sorts of different things, but mainly um, on the local skills improvement plans. Um, we know these plans, um, basically they'll bring together um, employers, further education, other, um, further education colleges, other providers and stakeholders to develop um, the plans which will essentially shape the technical skills um, so that it meets labour market needs and it will be employers at the what will the DOE want is the employers to be the people developing these plans and really leading them 
loaded uh, down. Employer representative bodies. Yes. So, you know, they stressed that a lot of times yesterday. Yeah, but I think, but that's the problem with people people don't really see the distinction between employee representative body and employers. It's, anyway, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so he raised an issue that I think ha- was raised in the first, um, in the second reading, sorry, and has been raised by, raised by a lot of people in the sector and that the Metro mayor, so Andy Burnham, Steve Rotherham, um, you know, they, they aren't included at all. They're, they're, they're not they're not included in the makeup of these plans and actually if you look in places like uh, Birmingham with Andy Street um, or yeah Manchester and Liverpool London London with Sadiq Khan of course yeah they you know they're really doing amazing things on skills with their um, devolved adult education budget so he was saying and I think so many people agree with him it seems a bit odd not to include the mayors in these skills plans when they're already doing a lot of the work so here is a clip of him now and be warned it is it is a bit ranty but it is definitely worth worth listening to so um here he is now we then come to the skills plans themselves my lords and i thought well no doubt because this government of course is uh, is is deeply versed in evidence-based policy so they will have have piloted these properly so we can see what these local skills plans are going to look like, who are the employer bodies that are going to be producing them, what is the relationship with the local further education colleges, with the mayoral authorities and the other public authorities. We could perhaps read one or two of them. I'm very keen to read them because from my experience of the centre trying to mandate other people to produce plans, it isn't the bodies charged with producing the plans that produce the plans. It's consultants employed by the bodies who are paid a fortune, who have no responsibility whatever for any of the delivery of the outcomes. For the first time outside London, we actually have public authorities which have some real strength and political credibility. Andy Street, a great guy, is doing a fantastic job in Birmingham in the West Midlands. Andy Burnham in, in Greater Manchester. Uh, ben Hauken uh, is, is created a big name for himself is maybe the apart from uh, Tony Blair the only major uh, recognizable political figure to have come out of the northeast in in recent times this is very welcome it's something which it, at the political level England desperately needs however my lords the one body specifically banned from from producing these local skills um, improvement because I have to get the jargon right or the local skills improvement plans are the mayors and the reason it turns out is because they're not employers. Well, I mean, it does, as a definitional thing, they're obviously not employers, they're mayors. But they are the people who have the capacity to generate real activity and engagement by the employers and the colleges in a really serious way. They should be tasked with this mission. But instead... So, yeah, what do you make of that then, Julia? Uh, I mean, you can see... I mean, again, you know, he obviously feels very strongly about this. I also think it's interesting at, at the committee stage because so many of these points are quite technical when you look at them. You know, a lot of the debate around why MA is included or excluded in, in this case is because they're not seen as employers, which of course is not true. They have plenty of employees. And so you end up later on in the day debating the technicalities of that. But actually, the, the fundamental point of who gets to make decisions and who decides what the skills needs in an area are is one that's going to be really crucial as this bill moves through Parliament. And I'm not sure that the government has quite worked out yet how strongly people feel about this and about the fact that it shouldn't just be 
employer representative bodies who are in the driving seat here. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's like you said, I wonder if people underestimate if the government underestimates how much people like the mayors. If you think of people like Andy Burnham, um, Andy Street, Sadiq Khan, Steve Rotherham, they're big names and people in those localities absolutely love them and really like the fact that they are seen as kind of big politicians but standing up for those local needs and local rights. So I think if you are talking about local schools for local people you can see why a lot of people would be... It's difficult to see past them, isn't yeah, it? Particularly, yeah. Particularly, you know, you, you've now interviewed quite a few of them and, and it's, you know, undoubtedly they have really strong skills agendas. This is something that matters to them and that they're really driving. Yeah, and they're the ones that can see it on the ground. You know, they actually see the change and they and they tailor... They've been tailoring their skills agendas to local needs for years. This isn't a new thing that the government decide, you know, thinks, oh, let's, let's tailor skills skills development to local needs that's what they already do um so yeah i'll be really interested to see and it, it wasn't just lord adonis a lot of the other lords also questioned you know why they've been excluded i thought lord story was inter- it was interesting when he was saying that employers don't want to lead the plans they want to be leading their job, businesses <laughs> yeah they've got a job they don't want to sit around tables talking to the government um and i think that's another interesting side of this do, do employers actually want this power do they have the time to, to do these things, you know? And then again, those are two different things, aren't they? Do they want the power and do they have the time? You know, do you want to play a role in a system? And have you actually got capacity, knowledge, expertise, all of those things to then do that? And so, yeah, so we'll definitely keep an eye on the skills bill and how that um, progresses through Parliament. Another um, story that we were covering this week, I think is really nice one to highlight, is our lifetime achievement winner at the FE Awards, Tim Jackson. So I had the pleasure of um, sitting down virtually, of course, with him a few weeks ago um, to kind of learn about the secrets to his, you know, leadership success. He was the principal of Sparsholt College for 22 years. And he actually spent... 120 years, yeah. Yeah, and even not as principal, he was actually at the college altogether for 38 years. So this is a man who, well, definitely knows a lot about Sparsholt College and its area, but a lot about leadership and what it means to be a successful leader in, you know, especially, you know, tricky times in the FE landscape. Um, In 2007, I think it was, um, the college merged with Crickdale College and it was really successful. And here is a clip of Tim talking about that merger and why he, you know, what he thinks is key to a successful merger and then he goes on to talk about um his leadership approach which he says are based on the several no seven nolan principles of public life he forget some halfway through we we, we kind of forget which the seven are so i'll just list them now so they are selflessness integrity objectivity accountability openness honesty and leadership so here's a clip of him for you personally you know overseeing that kind of 10-year transition what what was that like for you yeah, it, it, well, it was uh, it, it was made so much easier by the fact that we were merging with a college that was in a, a really parlous state, both the physical estate infrastructure and also the way, um, sadly, that the staff had, had become quite demoralised about the way things were going. There was just not enough. I mean, there was, there was no money to paint anything. You know, it looked so tatty. Uh, and yet in that college, there was lots of really good practice 
there was also lots of not really good practice and it was a question of of preserving and and celebrating that and i think that was one of the things that um initially because sparshold had been graded outstanding and all the rest of it um that staff at sparshold found it a, a bit difficult to come to terms with the fact what well, there's something to learn uh, from from this other college there was a lot to learn and actually the whole college became stronger as a result of that so um uh but but in a, in a college where there's a reluctance to merge i can imagine the challenges are even greater um but I, i'm involved at the moment as a, a board member at um, hybrid college in portsmouth and uh we're in the process of um merging with um the college in um, in Portsmouth, which is a sixth form college, which is very successful. And that is a really different kind of merger where you can actually see two um, organisations coming together. Um, and, and it's very much a 50-50. Uh, and that's how it's that's how that's how it feels to me, whether hopefully it feels like that on the ground. But that's, um, I think, a really important principle. And even though in Andover, when in my time in 2007, even though it was one college taking over another in reality, we portrayed it very much as a merger uh, of, of strengths. Uh, and that was important. I think the staff really at Andover really appreciated that. Uh, and, and as with all things, um, and the current principal at Highbury, I think is doing a, a fantastic job. And I recognise um, and have so much respect for her, is giving staff a jolly good listening to and not only are listening to, but that they feel uh, and understand that you're listening to them. It's not just platitudes and um, sort of looking at your watch to, to see when, when the next meeting starts. Really, really listening. And I think that's such an important part of leadership for me, uh, listening and being seen to listen. <laughs> what other things do you think are important? You know, what, what makes a great leader in a I've always thought, I mean, the Nolan, the seven Nolan principles of standards in public life, the um, what was this? selflessness, integrity, openness, um, <laughs> accountability. Um, oh, I miss one. I'll find them all, don't worry. Honesty. Objectivity. Like. <laughs> uh, honesty. Uh, honesty is one. Um, I think those, I mean, if you, if you, if you live by those uh, and, and, um, one of the Nolan principles is selflessness. And if you're seen to live by them as a leader, and, and this applies to whether you're a, a faculty head, a department head, or, or whatever you are, uh, I think people really respect it because those, those Nolan principles, it, it, you know, they, they represent whatever it is, whether it's a commercial company, an education establishment or not, they are, they're, they're really good tenets. Um, so uh, th th those are things that I think are really important for leadership. Uh, I think also um, the, 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 the need to reflect, uh, I think is a really difficult, uh, it's a really important one, but finding the time to reflect is, uh, <laughs> uh, is very important. Um, and that reflection isn't just sort of self-contemplation, it's about you know, the what, how, why questions. Uh, and thinking about the organization and the direction it's going is it making the impact um, is there a different way of doing this and always questioning and always looking carefully to see that um, uh, what you are reading or listening to is the reality 
because sometimes it may be simply the rhetoric or it may be a, a misconstrued version of what actually is, is, is there. So taking the time to triangulate what you're reading or hearing to make sure it's the truth, the whole truth, and not just someone's perspective, which is slightly distorted by the fact they've had a really bad day or a bad year or whatever it is. Yeah. There you go. You can really see, like, even, you know, I only spent an hour with him over Zoom, but you, you could really see why his staff all love him so much in the um, in the application they did for him to win the award. They said that um, he he was you know he had a strong worth ethic. He had a keen sense of duty, a positive approach, and respect for his fellow human beings. And I really felt like the way he spoke about his staff, you know, talking about the importance of just listening to staff, giving staff a jolly good listening to, as he said, is so is so true and it's so simple. And yet, I think maybe it's what some leaders can miss quite easily well you know he talks about the Nolan principles but those are pretty good principles to to go with as a leader to to start with surely uh, try and listen to your staff um but no his passion comes across really well and it's you know really interesting points about merger and, and what it takes to make a merger successful which is obviously something that you're looking at in the magazine today and in, in your feature yeah so today we um like you said so the um the feature was all about what makes a success- successful merger we've got people like audrey cumberford who um oversaw the a merger in um scotland a few scotland, years ago yeah. um yeah and you know it is it's just so interesting because we obviously mergers are also common now it's you know you hear you hear about one college merger with another and you think yeah that's you know pretty standard another yeah there's another <laughs> one another one bites the dust and another one becomes a, you know part of a massive college group um but i wouldn't yeah i didn't think there was really that much discussion about what it what it takes to have you know for these mergers to be successful and especially when you're bringing together you know three different colleges um who maybe all have a really keen sense of community and belonging to then bring those staff together under one banner um is tough and um yeah, yeah so that feature is really interesting and um well i would say that i wrote it but i would you know yeah, i think it is it's well worth a read. make sure you give it a read it is uh, a worth the a weekend, read maybe yeah and it's in this week's test which is out today so on that note thank you all so much for listening um have a lovely weekend and we will speak to you soon